Good, you're nice and awake. Um, this is my third time uh, getting to preach for you guys, or actually preach for Matt, but I'm preaching to you. Um, I will say this, this time is a lot more disappointing. Um, this is my first time in the new space, and I know you're excited about the new space, but let me, share you why, let me share with you why I'm not excited about the new space, because I'm missing the two elk. It's not here. I always made a joke every time I came, and it was, my, it was, like, it was a solid joke every time, and now it just falls dead that I got to preach at the Viking church. Right, goblets of wine, dead animals, it was fantastic, and now it's just, it's just this, it's just plain. So this will probably be my last time, so it was good to see you guys, and uh, yeah, no. <laughs> I'm excited to open up God's Word with you this morning. Uh, if you do have your Bible, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be looking at a familiar story for many of us, which is the story of Jesus calming the storm uh, in, in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. Um, and so let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll jump into the text. Why don't you join with me in prayer? Father God, you, you promise uh, through the words of Isaiah that your word uh, will fall on the earth uh, like water on dry ground. And not only will it moisten uh, the soil, uh, but it will produce fruit and life. And so, Lord, as your word now falls on your people, I pray that it w- what it would produce is not only souls that are enriched by the hearing of it, but that it would produce the love, the joy, the peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and gentleness that is only the result of the work of your Spirit. Um, Lord, I pray for a story that is familiar to so many of us, that we would just have um, fresh ears and open hearts and open minds. Uh, Spirit, we pray that you would give us understanding as only you can, uh, and that, Spirit, we would just be led uh, by you through this part of our liturgy. Christ, we love you, and the people of God said, amen. Well, it's one of the most, if not the most important question that anyone could ever ask. It's one of the most important questions that you'll ever answer in your life, and it's the question, who is God? Who is God? Uh, and, and admittedly so, it is easy in a space like this to answer that question, right? Uh, this space is designed, it's choreographed to proclaim the glory of God, to proclaim his attributes. Uh, we recite the Apostles' Creed that extols who God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is. We hear his scripture read, we hear his word preached, we come to his table. Um, this space is designed, and rightly so, it is, it is a breath of fresh air from the world around us that is trying to form us into its image, and we step into a space that is designed to continue to form us into Christ. And so it is easy to answer that question here as it should be, but I wonder if for many of us, it's as easy to answer that question, who is God, on Monday, when we're dealing with the boss that makes Pharaoh withholding straw look like vacation, when we're dealing with the coworker that just rubs us and grinds us, we're dealing another day as we stay home with the kids, another day where we just love those, but they are so needy sometimes, and just we just need a breath. I wonder if it's easy to answer that question when we go home after a gathering, and the same fight that's been going on in our marriage seems to surface. Or if you're not married, you return home to loneliness, and you're reminded of, of the great family-like community that you have here kind of heightens the pain that there is no family to return to. So again, the question, who is God, is incredibly important. And while it's easy to answer here, it's not always easy to answer in times of distress and need. How do you answer the question, who is God, when it feels like God doesn't care? When it feels like God doesn't hear your prayer? When it appears that God is completely absent, when he's promised to be present. 
How do we answer that question when the promises of God seem to fall short of what they promise us in Scripture? And in that moment of disconnect and suffering and oftentimes struggle, how you answer that question, who is God, is incredibly important. It's incredibly important. I mean, it's actually the question of this passage. And so uh, let's look together at Romans 8, verses 22 through 25. Or did I say Romans? I meant Luke. Luke. Luke 8, 22 through 25. One day, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water that they obey him? Now, a little word about miracles in the Gospels. Miracles in the Gospels are not there just because they happened. At the very end of John's Gospel, John writes this. He says, If all the things that Jesus said and all the things that Jesus did were recorded, there would not be enough books on earth to hold them. And so what that tells us is when we come across a miracle, when we come across the words of Jesus in the gospel, but especially for our time this morning, the miracles, they're not just there because they're these fancy magic tricks that happen, but they're there because they reveal something about Christ to us, and they reveal something about the good news of his gospel, the good news of his kingdom. They change us, they, they teach us, and so when we come across a miracle, it's not just water into wine, but again, it is teaching us something about our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and his will and his desire for what he desires to do in his kingdom to his people. And so let me set a little bit of context for the passage. Uh, you, we didn't read this, but coming out of Luke 7 and, and the first 21 verses of Luke 8, Jesus and the disciples are, at the, are in the throes of ministry. They are in the throes of ministry. Jesus is teaching. He's healing. They're feeding people. The disciples are not just like, like just bystanders who are just watching, taking notes. Uh, we know from other accounts that he's getting them involved in ministry, that they're beginning to, to, to kind of exercise their preaching gifts and their ministering gifts. A lot of what we see in the early chapters of Acts didn't just miraculously happen. It certainly is empowered by the Spirit in a different way. But these men are, 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 it's this lifelong apprenticeship with Jesus, and they are absolutely exhausted. We know that because um, Jesus, who is a 30-something, he's at the height of his life, gets in the boat and falls asleep. And he is so exhausted that he sleeps through a storm. And this is not a thunderstorm. Remember, the disciples are like deadliest catch type fishermen. They grew up on the Sea of Galilee. They knew, they, they knew the dangers, and yet they were sorely afraid. Jesus is so exhausted. Um, the disciples are exhausted too. In fact, I love Luke because Luke, if there was any gospel writer who was going to tell my story, I'd want it to be Luke because Luke always puts people in the best picture. Unlike Mark. Mark just absolutely tells it like it is in a way that almost seems kind of harsh. And we know that they're exhausted because Mark tells us in, in his gospel um, that they had actually been rowing all day and all night and were absolutely exhausted. That's the disciples. They didn't just set sail and all sit back, but they were rowing across the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee isn't like a, like a pond. It isn't a small lake. It's 12 miles long at its longest point, and at its shortest, it's only six miles long. It's only about 200 feet deep, which is 
is shallow for a lake. And so it was known for these great storms that would kind of come upon the lake because of the mountains that surrounded the Sea of Galilee. Again, Peter, James, John, these men, they grew up. Their, their livelihood was made on this sea. And so again, when we see them afraid, there's some weight to that. There's some weight to their fear. And, and that's incredibly important because I want to give these guys a little bit of grace because Jesus is actually going to rebuke them for their fear. And it's easy for us to look and go, like to think that I would be the disciple who was like, guys, it's Jesus, we got this. Don't you remember what he said about, about, uh, about what he came to accomplish? It's, you think this is how it's going down? I would love to think that was me when, when in reality, I'd be the disciple in the fetal position in the bottom of the boat covered in salt water just crying. Like that's, I wouldn't even think about awakening Jesus. Jesus because I'd be so frozen with, with fear. Sperries are as close as I'll get to a boat. I just don't like them. I don't like the idea of them. I'm just being honest and vulnerable. It's my last time preaching, remember? And so I'll never be here again, so I can be honest with you. Um, and, and we'd love to think that we would be the disciples, right? Guys, let's just, let's wait for Jesus to wake up. Give him a few more minutes. Let's keep rowing. Uh, but again, these men are human. Jesus is still going to rebuke them for their fear, but they are still incredibly human. Um, and so the disciples in this situation, we kind of enter into the center of the story. The disciples are dealing with two things. They are completely powerless. They are complete. Again, Mark tells us that they've been rowing all day and all night and haven't made any progress. The disciples are completely powerless. They, are, they have come face to face with their limitations. Even as sailors and as fishermen, they've come face to face with their limitations. That's the first thing they're dealing with. But the second thing they're dealing with is their Messiah is asleep. Their Savior is asleep in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the storm. And so this morning, very quickly, I want to look at two aspects of this story, which I think are really the central themes of this story. And the first is faith. Or the first is fear and the second is faith. The first is fear and the second is faith. Let's look first at fear. Uh, the disciples run to Jesus in the midst of the storm and they wake him up with the phrase, we are perishing. Now again, Mark who gives us the actual, like what actually went down, in Mark chapter four where the same story is told, here's, the, here's what the disciples actually said because it's important. Uh, in Mark chapter four, the statement is, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Right? That's a completely different. To, to walk up and say, Lord, we're, Jesus, maybe you didn't realize we're perishing is completely different than for them to go, do you not care? Do you not care? This is about the disciples' heart. This was about a doubt over whether or not their Savior actually loved them, whether or not he actually cared for their lives. And so let's talk about fear for a moment. These men were afraid, and, and fear by its very nature is an interpretation of life. Let me say that again. Fear by its very nature is an interpretation of life. And so let me give you the equation of how we arrive to fear. Here's the equation for, and every single one of us run through this equation, and this equation either ends in hope or courage or ends in fear. And so let me share with you that equation. It is situation plus self, and if you're a follower of Jesus, the next variable is plus God equals fear. Situation plus self plus God equals fear. We, we look at the situation that we're facing. Maybe it's financial hardship, right? Because the, this storm has been throughout all of church history looked at as a metaphor for difficulty and suffering. And on this side of the garden, every single one of us will come face to face with suffering or difficulty. I tell our church all the time that the Christian life is the Christian life of suffering. 
It comes up in discipleship. Take up your cross and die daily. You will experience suffering and hardships. Jesus tells us not to be surprised by it. But even if you are in a season where the Lord is just blessing you and there is favor and bounty, then someone you know in your church community or in your family is suffering. And so in that sense, the Christian life is a life of suffering. And so the storm is always looked at as a metaphor for suffering. And so a situation comes up, we look at the situation, and then the next thing we look at is either our ability or our inability to handle the situation. And then if you're a follower of Jesus, and even my might argue, even for the doubters and seekers who might be in this room tonight or this morning, we meet in the, we meet in the evening, so if I confuse it, then just ignore. What you bring in is who you think God is and what you think God's doing. You look at the situation, you look at your ability or inability to handle it, and then you bring in, and this is the variable that changes everything. It goes back to that question of who is God. You bring into the situation, you bring into the perspective of your ability or inability, who you think God is, what you think God is at work doing, and it's either going to result in hope or courage, or it's going to result in fear. And so let me ask you, in, in, a, in the situation of difficulty that you might be facing, that you have faced, that you will face in the moment of suffering, how does your equation work out? Does it work out in courage and rest and peace? Or does it result in fear and anxiety and worry? Because given our confession of who we believe God to be, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, even as we confess this morning through the ancient Apostles' Creed, if that God is who we confess, then in many cases, our fear, our worry, and our anxiety do not make sense. In fact, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was an old Welsh preacher who has since passed away, in his book, um, um, Spiritual Depression, has a whole entire chapter called, Where is Your Faith?, that is his, his sermon of, um, of this text. And I was half tempted just to bring the book up here and just read it. <laughs> but he says in there that, that, that what Jesus is, is trying to get across to them is that their fear makes no sense. Their fear makes no sense. And, and, it, and, and I'm, well, I'm going to get to that in a moment, but it, it almost feels harsh from Jesus. He's going to rebuke them. We're going to look at that in a moment. In fact, actually, let's, let's just let's move that way now because Jesus is going to respond to this fear with a double rebuke. First, he gets up and he rebukes the storm. And what happens? The storm ceases and there is calm. It's not just that the storm goes away, but now there is the presence of calm, right? Which speaks to the renewing work of Christ in all of creation. Colossians 1 that he is bringing reconciliation, not just between our souls and God, but all things between heaven and earth are being reconciled between God. He rebukes the storm. And here's what I love so much about this story. Here's why, the, again, Jesus isn't like a magician, right? He's not a wizard. What Colossians 1 tells us is that everything was created by him, through him. Everything is held together. Here's why the storm ceased. It recognized the voice of its creator. It recognized his voice. This is the one who sang us into, into being, who sang us into reality. We have to obey him. We have to obey him. That's why the storm ceases. It recognizes the voice of its creator. And we need to let this moment roll over us because this is our Lord. This is his power. This is his glory. That he can stand up in the face of a storm that would kill someone and he can speak peace. 
And not just, and, and again, if you look at Luke's words, it's not just an absence of a storm. It is the presence of calm. It is the presence of shalom. It's the presence of what God did in the garden and created in the garden that because of sin is being decreated, but because of redemption is now being recreated. It is the presence of calm. And so how foolish in the face of this do our fears seem. This is the one who said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the Christ who is with you through his spirit. But he not only rebukes the storm, but he also rebukes the disciples. He rebukes the disciples. Again, Luke's words are, are kind of kind. He goes, where is your faith? But again, Mark, who, as we've already established, tells it like it is. Mark says this, why are you still afraid? Do you still have no faith? Because by this time, the disciples' nickname had become, oh, ye of little faith. I joke about all the time with our church, and this is going to sound worse than it is. They laugh, I promise. Is that it would have been, like, again, we look down on the disciples for this, but we could have named our church instead of Redemption City, like, oh, ye of little faith community church. And nobody would have come. But this is their nickname by now, O ye of little faith. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, when talking about Jesus' question here, is literally saying, like, look at the almost year that you've been with me. Think about the miracles. You've seen me raise three people from the dead. You've seen me cast out demons. You've seen me perform miracles. You've, hear, you've heard me preach the good news of the kingdom. Where, where is that? Bring that empirical evidence with you in the moment of the storm. Lay it out and say, we're going to be okay. Jesus' question is, do you still not have faith? And it's a surprising response from Jesus. Again, going back to like any of us would be scared. And so this is a surprising reaction from Christ. It's not the one like what we want is we want the one who, who comes with us, right? It's, it's uh, when he hears the news of Lazarus and he begins to weep. We want weeping Jesus in the middle of our storm. What we get here isn't weeping Jesus. Now, I'm grateful that we have both. That it's not just Jesus who rebukes fear, but it's also Jesus who weeps with those who are suffering. We have both. Jesus is incredibly complex. But in this moment, it's almost surprising. It's, not the, it's a Jesus that sometimes makes us uncomfortable. But here's why. I think this is important for two reasons. Um, one, one reason comes from church history, and the second will come because I think it's a principle that is relevant for us. The first from church history. Most of the men in this boat will die. And like all of us face death, but let me explain to you. Most of the men in this boat, the apostles, will face death because of their belief in Christ because they're preaching the gospel. Most of them will be beaten multiple times, imprisoned, lashed. The apostle Peter will be crucified. Church history tells us he is crucified upside down because he doesn't want to be crucified in the same way as our Lord. Some of these men will be boiled alive, will be eaten by lions, will have their heads removed. Their families will be killed, will be persecuted. They will be, their heads will be cut off and displayed around the city as a warning to not preach the gospel. They don't know this, but Jesus does. They don't know this, but Jesus does. And listen, if he can get them to trust him in the storm, they will trust him in the greatest storm of all. Because here's the other thing church history tells us, not one of these men recant. Not one of these men go, fine, we hid the body. There was no resurrection, we hid it. Here's where it is. 
None of these men under torture and death ever recanted their faith. In fact, their faith was only strengthened. And this church and our church in Frederick and every church, the very mortar of our church is their blood. What God is doing here, see, Jesus has the long view. He knows what's coming. He knows what's coming for the next 2,000 years that the gospel will advance through the planting of churches and that these men's blood will form the foundation. So that's what he's teaching him here. But I think the second principle, which is important for us, especially in the, in the face of suffering, in the face of difficulty, is the realization that it is more natural for us in the midst of suffering and trial to, leave with, to lead with doubt rather than self-examination. It is more natural for us to lead with doubt than to lead with self-examination. Think about the last time where you experienced suffering or trials or difficulty. I would imagine that for most of us, myself included, our first and, and kind of gut reaction to that wasn't, why am I so afraid? I know who's on the throne. This is incredibly hard, but he's promised to be with me through the difficulty. And maybe that is you, and, and, and that is God's grace. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. But for most of us, I'd be willing to bet and almost guarantee that for most of us, it was easier to doubt God's care, to doubt God's love, to doubt God's goodness, to doubt God's wisdom. Like, Lord, you said if I was faithful, that you would be faithful. Right? That's why we love the Proverbs. They're so transactional. Do this, it'll work out. Don't do this, and it'll work out. But then that's why God gives us the Ecclesiastes, right, to remind us that there are exceptions to every rule. <laughs> but it's so much easier for us in those moments of difficulty to doubt God's care and to doubt God's love rather than do what Jesus steps in and do, does and first goes, where's your faith? Where's your faith? Look at the disciples' response. And in fact, and let, me, let me say this. Um, this is one of the reasons, especially this, this tendency for us to doubt God's love, care, wisdom, goodness in the midst of trial and suffering. Like, that's our natural bend. And I think because that's our natural bend, that's why we need the church's family. That's why we need authentic Christian community. Not just the kind of like show up on Sunday and roll out. Because you can come, listen, I, my dad was a pastor. We had a saying whenever we'd pull up to the church, put on your church face. So I know that you can come into this space with a smile while your life is wrecked. That when someone goes during the passing of the peace, like, brother, sister, how are you? And you go, it's, I'm good. And deep down inside, like you are just, you don't even know why you're here or how you even got here because you're so miserable. So in a space like this, it, it's certainly important and God forms us here. But then throughout the week for spiritual friendship, for time and community, because then what we get in those spaces is what we see in places like Luke chapter five with the paralyzed man who had friends who could carry him to Jesus. Because all of us at some point are going to be in one or two places. We're going to be in the place where we need to be carried to Christ and we don't have the power to do it on our own and we need those around us to take us back to who Christ is. Or, or there will be someone who we love dearly who will need to be carried to the feet of Christ. And that is our role and our calling as the people of God is to lift them up and to carry them. And again, what does Jesus marvel at there? He doesn't marvel at their ingenuity he doesn't marvel at, guys, it took courage to rip off the roof of, some, of someone's house that is not yours. What does he marvel at? He marveled at their faith. He marveled at their faith. It's the need for authentic Christian community. 
And look at how the disciples responded. In fact, I, I don't even know if they heard the rebuke. Like they're reading through the gospels later and they were like, did you know that Jesus rebuked us? <laughs> I didn't know. Peter certainly didn't know. They're so blown away by what happened. It says, and they marveled. And they marveled. Uh, now what's interesting is, is there's a different type of fear. They, they marveled and were afraid. There's a different type of fear here. The first fear is a distress. They were afraid not only what was happening, but what was going to happen. The fear that we see pop up in this verse, that they, they marveled and were afraid, it's a completely different word. If the first word meant distress, this word literally means awe. They were in awe. There was amazement. In fact, even if you dig into the meaning and where, the, where this word comes from, it literally comes from this idea of this life-shaping alarm. They were in awe of their Savior. And there's an important principle here that only fear has the power to defeat fear. Only fear has the power to defeat fear. They were afraid because they were unable. They were afraid because the storm that they faced was greater than them. But the only thing that had power to defeat it was awe and amazement at who Christ was. Because the Lord is being revealed to them, not only in his flesh, right? Uh, if you ever use the New City Catechism in question 21, it says, what type of savior did we need? Or what type of redeemer did we need? And the answer is one that is fully God and fully man. And you get this in the story. They were beginning to see that Christ is not only a man who's exhausted and needs to sleep, but he is God in the flesh who stands over the storm and speaks calm and peace and it obeys. And it is only a fear and all of who he is that defeats their fear. This is one of the reasons why I love the Psalms so much is because you continually see this in the book of Psalms. The psalmist who is sorely afraid, but then he begins to cry out and sing out the attributes of God. I face the enemy. They surround me. Death is at my door. And yet, my God of old works out salvation in the midst of the earth. My God, who is seated on the throne, has put down Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Surely he will come to my aid now. This is the song of the psalmist. And so that is fear. But then carrying with it, within this context, then what is faith? Well, faith is carrying with you such a deeply rooted fear of God that you have hope and courage in situations where you once would have been afraid. Faith is bringing into that equation who the Bible says God is. That when you face a situation and you take it in and see your ability or your inability, that the variable then is who God really is. A sovereign, loving creator who holds all of creation together. Who is working out redemption in the midst of his people. Has promised that what he's begun in you, the good work he's begun, he will finish. Right? As good reformed people, we're afraid of the promises of God because we've seen it so abused. Like claim the promises, right? Name and claim. And I'm afraid for our tradition that what we've left is this beautiful tool because what the promises of God are is they reveal God's heart. They throw open his chest and reveal to us what he desires. And so we bring those desires to bear on our situation. Lord, I know what you desire here is not brokenness, but wholeness. So will you not work? Lord, I know that what you desire here is not suffering, but peace. Will you not bring peace? 
we wrestle with God. Because here's what I believe, like as the Reformed community, our tradition opens us up to wrestle with God in prayer like nothing else does. Because we know our salvation is secure, that we are children, and that no one gets access to the king like a child. And we can go in and say, Dad, you said this, why isn't it happening? And he's pleased with it. He's pleased with it. It's bringing, faith is carrying with us such a deep-rooted, life-shaping fear of God, awe of God, amazement of God, that you have hope and courage in situations where you would have once been afraid. The disciples ask, who then is this, that he commands even winds and waters that they obey him? He is Jesus. He is our Lord. Do you rest in him in moments of difficulty? Does fear of him overwhelm you more than any other fear you have? Because this type of faith isn't calling you to deny reality, to deny suffering, to deny difficulty. This type of faith promises to go with you in the midst of it. And what it brings with it is the good news of the gospel. It brings the good news of who God is and what he's doing. This faith isn't a way, in fact, be weary. In fact, not not even be like weary. Avoid any type of spirituality that promises you complete freedom from suffering. That's not reality on this side of garden in the kingdom. We're waiting for that to come. That's a longing for resurrection. It's coming, but it's not here. But this type of fear goes with us into the storm. And what it produces is not the disciple in the fetal position, but the disciple who runs to the master, clings to his feet, wakes him up, and sees him move. The faith of the Bible is so in awe of the grandeur and glory of God that it's able to look at the deepest, darkest realities of life and not be afraid. It's the, the, ancient, the first book ever written in the Bible is the book of Job. It's a story of a storm and a God who is faithful throughout the storm, even when those in the storm couldn't see it. The first book of the Bible that is ever written. Oops, there goes my alarm, so I know to stop preaching. <laughs> And so you will face difficulty, but your greatest difficulty, and, and I, I would be, I'd be remiss not to make this point, of all the difficulty you will face, the greatest difficulty does not exist outside of you. Friends, the greatest difficulty exists inside of you. The greatest storm of your life is sin. The waves of sin beat against the borders of your heart, threatening to drown you, and you have no ability to defeat it but it is all the saving grace of Christ, the good news of the gospel that will give you hope in the face of your sin. And so do you run to the Lord for the only peace he can give when you're dealing with your sin? And if you're a doubter or seeker in this room this morning, you just got drug here. The greatest storm and difficulty you will face is the, is the, as, as the old preacher Spurgeon put it, the disease that clings to your soul, which is sin. But Christ, through the good news, of his own life, death, and resurrection has claimed victory over sin, death, and evil. Even the ones that reign in your life. And by faith in him, he calms the storm. He speaks peace. Now very quickly, let me, let me just play out how this plays out in practice. Uh, first of all, I, I, I gosh, if, if there was one thing I had to preach about aside from Jesus for the rest of my life, it would be the culture of immediacy that is rampant throughout not only our culture, but especially within the church. We want this to happen fast. 
But so much of what's important requires patience. It requires us to do small, almost overlooked things for a long extended period of time in the same direction. And so learning to have this type of faith in the face of a storm requires time and patience and the Holy Spirit. But it also requires practice. You speak to yourself more than anyone. Did you ever think about that? No one talks to you more than you. So what you say matters. And so in the moment of difficulty and pain, what is it you recite to yourself? What is it you say to yourself? Is it, I have a God who doesn't care. I have a God who doesn't love me. I have a God whose wisdom has led me here. Or do you preach to yourself, I am my beloved and he is mine. I am in Christ. Though the storms may wail against me, my Savior is with me and he speaks calm over my soul and over the storm because that's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Spirit, we come to you as a people who are needy and we in many ways are grateful for our neediness because in our neediness, we see in you not, not limits, but a lack of limits. Because Christ, you are the firstborn of all creation. By you and through you, all things were made, both on heaven and on earth. And you hold them all together. And through your life, death, and resurrection, you are reconciling all things to you through your blood. So Lord, give us faith. Give us, give us a fear that sets our eyes on you and not the waters. We love you, Jesus. And Holy Spirit, we ask for you to do this because there's only a work that you can accomplish. Christ, we love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.